And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, and it's great to be with you today. It's Thursday, and man, we've just been flying through the week, Have some great programs. We're going to continue with that string in that uh, we're going to pick out some pretty important points of discussion and debate with our good friend, Brian Mercier. Catholic Brian's going to be joining us on the other side of the break, and uh, he's actually engaged in a few debates himself. And uh, so what I'm going to do with Brian, I think, is uh, we're going to maybe do a little bit of a debate breakdown and, and pick a topic that is um, that he had debated with non-Catholics and, and drill down on it. So it, it's kind of a debate breakdown, if you will, today. You know, the cool thing with Brian is uh, it's just fun to talk to him. He's got so much experience that we almost don't need a topic. We just... Uh, just need to get together and just start chatting about apologetics. All sorts of gold comes uh, pouring in, as I like to say here in the dojo. So that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy, the informal fallacy, is judgmental language. And we are also going to meet an early church father. You know, early church fathers, very, very important for establishing the beliefs of the early church and showing that the beliefs that us Catholics hold today go all the way back. And uh, so you need to look at early evidence. And, and that could take many different forms, as you know, especially if you're a veteran to the show. Um, we've had uh, epitaphs on tombstones as early church fathers. We've had... Uh, Letters from uh, saints that it turns out it's not a letter, and we're not really sure who wrote it. Um, <laughs> you know, all sorts of strange things like that. Well, today is, is, again, one of those oddities, I guess you could say, because it's actually, it's not a book, and it's not um, a letter. It's a sacramentary, and specifically, it's the sacramentary of Serapion. So we're going to talk a little bit about the sacramentary of Serapion, because, uh, you know, that also re prayer reflects the beliefs of the church. And so it's not surprising at all. So sacramentary would uh, be very important evidence for the time period in which it's written. So we got all of that going on today. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So hello, all of you listening on radio around the country. And of course, all you live stream peeps, how you doing? And all of you listening via podcast around the world and in the future. It's great to have all of you with us. And uh, as always, I want to plug VirginMostPowerfulRadio.org. Why? Because it's a great tool, especially if um, you can't listen to the whole of the program or maybe you're busy doing something, maybe you're at work and you missed an important point. Never fear, Virgin Most Powerful is here with the virginmostpowerfulradio.org website. All you have to do is just go on it, click on Hands on Apologetics, and boom, you got all the programs there, including today's, which will eventually be uploaded. 
And that way, if you missed a portion of the program, you can just click it and listen and hear it at your own leisure. Moreover, it's a great evangelization tool. So you can download the program and most especially you can share it with friends. You can post it on social media, stuff like that. And that's something I really encourage because that helps with the exposure to the show and helps people learn about what we're doing here because uh, we have a lot of great material that people need. And so it's just going to sit out there in the Internet, uh, not being effective unless we uh, connect those who need it with the material itself. And that's something you can help out. Also, the official Dojo mailbox is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That comes directly to me, and I do answer it. And not always timely, but I do try to get to it. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, doo -doo -doo. Yes, let's go to the Finding the Fallacy segment, shall we? Today's Finding the Fallacy, like I said, is judgmental language. Now, the sensei is going to disagree a little bit with the definition. Uh, but let me read you the definition, then I will tweak it. Okay. <laughs> judgmental language is a subset of the red herring fallacies. It employs insulting, compromising, or pejorative language to influence the recipient's judgment. Uh, yeah, that's true. But uh, that's also kind of an ad hominem, right? Or it could be appeal to emotion. It could be a lot of different things. Judgmental language, I think, is actually more akin to loaded language. And what it does is it's, it's not the fallacy isn't that you're being judgmental. I mean, we all have to judge things, right? We all have to ascertain truth from fiction, right from wrong, that type of stuff. But judgmental language is where you've already prejudged something to be right or wrong, good or evil. And then in your language, you're kind of couching the argument in such a way that these conclusions are being snuck in under descriptive terms, okay? Uh, I, let me give you an example. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, maybe somebody might be talking about the papacy and they'll sneak in something like the evil papacy had also forbade the, the reading of the Bible or something like that. Well, by describing papacy as evil, they've already made a determination about the legitimacy and the efficacy of the papacy. And instead of arguing it and presenting evidence for that, instead what they do is they kind of sneak the term in and they're couching their argument in such a way that basically the conclusion's already baked in. And in that way, it affects the recipient's judgment. At least that's, that's how I understand it. But the other one, uh, I guess it could be true, but for me it's just a little too general employs insulting, compromising, or pejorative language to influence the recipient's judgment. I think you could probably refine that that a little bit. But, uh, yeah, so judgmental language, again, like I said, it, it's kind of like it pre-bakes the conclusion by either saying, couching things as favorable or not favorable or erroneous or true, right, and in the description or in the argumentation. Okay, so, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say on that one. Let's meet our early church father for today. Like I said, our early church father today is actually a sacramentary. 
And it's the sacramentary of Serapion. Serapion was is bishop of uh, Egypt and was previously mentioned in uh, Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers in regards to Athanasius of Alexandria, who uh, wrote a few letters to um, Serapion around the year 360 A.D. In an 11th century manuscript discovered on Mount Athos, uh, it constitutes a unique example of the what's called the Eucologion, or the sacramentary or missal, ascribed to Serapion. And this Eucologion, in Greek, consists of some 30 prayers, and it's certainly of Egyptian origin. The dates from, uh, like I said, around the year 350 A.D., with an earlier date probably being preferred to a latter date. Um, with its 30 prayers, the 1st and the 15th are ascribed specifically in their headings to Serapion, and the rest, in view of style and content, are certainly from the same author. The 18th of the 30 prayers are a Eucharistic character, 7 concern baptism and confirmation, 3 for the ordinations, and one for a blessing of holy oils, and one for funerals. An appended letter concerning father and son is not in Serapian style, as witnessed by the Eucologion and by the treaties against the Manichaeans. The letter is somewhat clumsy defense of the, the Nicene doctrine. The liturgy of the Mass represented in the Lokiogion, or Eucologion, excuse me, uh, has much in common with the so-called Liturgy of St. Mark, but it also exhibits numerous peculiarities attributed to Serapion. A prayer for the unity of the Church uh, is drawn from the Didache, and one of the Apostolic Fathers, uh, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and it's interposed between the consecration of the bread and the consecration of the wine. There is an apoclesis, calling down the logos upon the species and there seems to be an all uh, all too uh, to be not considerable influence of Gnosticism upon the liturgy um, so Serapion very important um, figure in the church we know mainly through Athanasius and of course through the sacramentary of Serapion now like I mentioned before why is this an early church father, uh, a prayer book? Well, because as the church prays, so she believes, right? That prayers manifest the faith of the church at the time. So to have a sacramentary as early as this, and Jurgen's places the date sometime around AD 350, so this is quite early, um, we kind of have a, a little window into the views of the church, the beliefs of the church in prayer form. And I believe this is available online, if I'm not mistaken. A uh, great place to go, by the way, if you ever want to read what the early church fathers wrote. Just go to newadvent.org, and uh, they have their works of the early fathers available free right there. And you can read, you can cut and paste, and it's a very, very good site. And that's our early church father for today, the Sacramentary of Serapion. And coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Brian Mercier. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. We'll be talking about doing just that, defending the faith. And we're going to do it with our good friend, Catholic Brian. Brian Mercier is with us. Brian, as you know, is a professional Catholic speaker, retreat leader, an author, and also a Catholic apologist. Uh, he is probably one of the busiest Catholic apologist out there. Uh, he has numerous platforms, including on YouTube, Catholic Truth, and Catholic Truth Podcast. And you can check out his great stuff at catholictruth.org. And Brian Mercier, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thank you, Gary. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I wasn't kidding when I said you're like one of the busiest <laughs> apologists out there. Uh, on top of all your stuff, on top of your talks, your retreats, you're also debating. Yeah, we are debating. You know, we're kind of sick and tired of Protestants who don't know anything. And, you know, I can understand ignorant Protestants or like people who, you know, you're one of the mill people who just don't understand the Catholic faith. But we're talking like, you know, top Protestant theologians, influencers, uh, people who are influencing other people online, pastors, and they misrepresent Catholicism as much or more as the common Protestant who doesn't know anything about Catholicism, which is really sad, really <laughs> kind of uh, just shoddy research from top to bottom, or they just don't care about what the Catholic Church teaches. And I'm just tired of so much misinformation uh, being put out there. Now, I've been evangelizing Protestants forever, and many just don't know better. But many more, it seems, today have an axe to grind or a vendetta. It's like they, I mean, these are top pastors and theologians, and they're doing what I did when I was at the beginning of my apologetics, at the beginning of my conversion. They're just trying to find any information that'll fit their pre biased bigotry, they're the points that they already have in mind, and they just latch onto this information without doing honest research, without in, doing intellectual research. I mean, almost every week, sometimes almost every day, we have people coming back to the Catholic Church uh, here at Catholic Truth, from Protestantism, former Catholics, angry ex-Catholics, people who are like, oh, we were the ones who hated you, and we've been arguing with you for years and calling you Satan, and now we're coming back to the Catholic Church and we're bowing the knee to Rome. I'm like, what? You know, because we've taken the time to deal with their misconceptions and their misunderstandings. Some people have these and they're easy to work with, but other people just don't. They just re they just regurgitate their their fire, their anger, their their, I don't know, whatever happened to them in the church. And they just left, like Mike Gendron, for example. He's been an ex-Catholic for 35 years, and he has a ministry, you know, called Proclaiming the Gospel, where his whole ministry is dedicated to taking Catholics out of the church. And he has the same talking points in the same talks all across the board, and everything he says top to bottom about Catholicism is false. How can someone who is Catholic and has studied Catholicism for so long, even though he hasn't studied it at all— how can he be so wrong for so long about Catholicism? So here I am saying, you know what? I'm going to challenge some of these people to debate. You know, we need to get this out into the open. We need to have a discussion where people can hear both sides and hear what Catholics believe for themselves. Yeah. Now, what's shocking is people actually took you up on that because over the years I found, I mean, I've sent out so many invites to debate and it's almost always ignored, you know, because they know they can't substantiate what they're saying. Exactly. So to actually be able to uh, publicly debate somebody, uh, that's cool. That's cool. Yes, it is. 
by the way? Yeah, very. Because I'm in the <laughs> same boat you are. I had yeah. sent out 20 invitations for debate and all of them either said no or back down after they said yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> once we started getting the details ready. And, you know, Mike was, to his credit, Mike Gendron, as angry as he is against Catholics and as much as he misrepresents them, he said yes. And that's, you know, honorable. And so uh, we had a full debate. And well, mostly a full debate. He didn't want to have the cross-examination time, which I thought was needed because you need cross-examination to hold people accountable for the things they say, you know. But um, and then after that, we had two lesser people recently uh, debate on the topic of sola scriptura. Mike's was on eternal security. We just reached out to um, the Cleveland Street preacher. No, Robert Breaker, who's fiercely anti-Catholic. He said no. We just reached out to John MacArthur, haven't heard anything back from him. Just reached out to Ray Comfort and the people at Living Waters. They said no. I said, well, you know, all right, you don't want to debate. Let's do a friendly ecumenical dialogue. You can have all three of you talk against me. That's fine. Let's just have a discussion because you guys are very much misrepresenting Catholicism. But it's like pulling teeth. It's like they just want to you know, they're not open. They're not honest. This is so sad because these are the leaders of the Protestant world and they're not even being honest. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh, um, yeah, I, I don't understand. Uh, you know, I maybe it's because, uh, well, your platform, I mean, you know your stuff, you're articulate, you're experienced. I, I have a feeling that would probably scare a lot of people off, you know, because you're not an easy mark. You know, you actually know what Catholicism teaches. Yes. Um, maybe that's why Mike Gendron said yes <laughs> to me, because he thought I was an easy mark. And it was interesting because he's like, I want just want to make sure that I have confirmation that you're going to record this. And I'm going to I want confirmation that you're not going to edit anything. And I want confirmation that I can share this with everybody after the debate. I said, yes, yes. And yes. And uh Good. So I don't think he knew that I knew my stuff because I didn't send him it from Catholic Truth. I didn't tell him I was from Catholic Truth. I just said I had a podcast and I sent it to my from my private email. So unless they're going to go do some research, you know, but once they're on the older side, they generally don't do that. They have other people do that for them. So, yeah. That's um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. That's how I've been doing it recently. But, yeah, I'm going to be reaching out to more and more people for debates. I was stupid. I put three in one month and I've just been busy. But that's why I couldn't do your show last month because I was insanely busy. Because it yeah. takes me a month to prepare for one debate, one month, and then I put three in a month. And so I was like every day, every night, every minute, I was just cramming because I, I like I'm someone who likes to know everything. And I have to watch all the other people's videos, all their debates, all their talks, everything. Yeah, that's incredibly important. So you spend, who knows, maybe 10 times the amount of time, at least, you know, at least researching, getting prepared before you spend like an hour or two debating, you know. And that's a mark of a good debater, by the way, because uh, I've seen debates where there was no preparation, very little preparation, and they just get hammered left and right. But when you know your stuff, uh, you know, uh, that's pretty formidable. You know, you're a formidable opponent. So good for you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, um, Mike, I don't think was prepared as much as he you know, should have been perhaps, um, you know, because I think, you know, it's a Catholic. I, I know all about Catholicism. I don't need to really worry about anything. And I have my same old talking points. I'm just going to use the same thing. No Catholic can answer that. And in fairness, he's brought up many of these points to Catholics and they've said, oh, well, I don't know. I got to talk to my priest. He's like, oh, well, I'll come talk to your priest with you. 
And he goes to the priest and talks to them. And the priest does can't answer his questions either on the Bible. And the priest looks like a, you know, someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. And so we have priests and Catholics who seriously need to learn apologetics. Like, yeah. really, it's getting to the point where if a, if you're a priest and you can't defend your laity, you can't defend the people who are coming to you to protect you from the wolf, then there's something that needs to be done. You need to learn your faith. Stop doing everything else and start protecting your flock. Teach them. That's another thing we need to do in our church is we need to teach our flock. We need apologetics. We don't just need CCD. We have CCD every week. We have religious education, and yet we're graduating tens of thousands of teens every year who don't know anything, who are being picked off at every corner. We need apologetics. We need to teach them to deal with all the stuff they're going to hear in high school, college, work. All And this goes for adults, too. We just need more apologetics from priesthood down. And it's one of my dreams that I could teach priests apologetics sometime or teach them how to evangelize others, teach them how to successfully um <clears throat> inform others, teach others, influence others, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, catechesis tells you what we believe. Apologetics tells you why we believe what we believe. And, and how to defend difference. it. Yeah, that's a big, big difference. It's uh, really night and day as far as uh, being able to protect yourself. And at, you know, <laughs> at the very least, uh, if there is a priest listening that isn't up on apologetics, the very least you should be able to plug them into somebody who is a seasoned apologist like yourself, you know, if, you know, a doctor doesn't know all fields, he's a general practitioner, but he should refer them to, to experts, right? So exactly. at least you should be able to do that. Um, yes. I mean, I just send them to our website to read our articles on that topic or our YouTube yeah. channel or send them to Catholic Answers. I mean, I send people away when I don't know the answer. I mean, there are certain people like Michael Lofton who have expertise in certain fields that I don't have. So I send them to him, you know, to get the full answer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't be an expert in every field, but you need to know where the answers are. And uh, so, wow, that was a brilliant move about, uh, you know, approaching it from a low profile. And he <laughs> bit. And uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about how long was the debate? You said it was on eternal security, right? Yes. Can we be saved and can we lose our salvation? Okay. And how long was the debate? I would say it was about an hour and a half. Okay. Um, and that was without the cross-examination section that I really wanted and we needed i thought yeah uh, and that's a shame especially when somebody is uh fabricating stuff the cross-examination areas like really where you uh, uh uncover you know show that they're fabricating and so, not just and not just and not just uh fabricating stuff but he was a I don't want to call him a low life, but he used dirty debating technique and tactics. It reminded me of James White. It was it would be something James White would do. So it was the last section. I had my last five minutes to answer. And he said, I hope that Brian will answer these questions that no Catholic can really answer. And he asked me, I think, 13 or 15 really deep questions on eternal security. Um, just some of them here. He uh, he just rapid fired them all, too. He said, um, how can one who is born of incorruptible seed suddenly die again? If you're incorrupt, that means you can't die, he said. And then he goes on to say that if you are a new creation, how can you revert to what has passed away? 
He said, how has one who has been perfected forever, according to uh, Hebrews 10, 14, suddenly become imperfect since Christ has perfected him? Uh, how can God's irrevocable gift of eternal life be taken back? Is God unfaithful, he says? Uh, how can the good shepherd fail to protect his sheep? Are you saying that God is unfaithful? So he went through all of these, and I had five minutes, and I called him out on it, too. I said, thanks, Mike, for waiting to the last section to ask all of your deepest and most abundant amount of questions. I was like, that's very honest of you. And uh, he got a little chuckle because he knew he did that. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, sandbagging, right? Uh, you just yes, exactly just plow the person out with a giant bunch of. Usually, they're pretty irrelevant uh, questions, but uh, it, still, yeah, it's like there's no physical way you can answer all that. So good, good for you for calling them, uh, calling them on that. Yeah, we made two videos, follow up videos to the debate. One on. The first part of the debate where he asked a lot of questions we couldn't get to. And then the second video, which was 45 minutes, just answering these 13 questions. And he wanted me to answer them in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and yeah, that's that just shows how absurd it is. Uh, we're chatting with Brian Mercier of CatholicTruth.org. And uh, we're just breaking down the debates and, and answering objections. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Brian Mercier of Catholic Truth. You can check it out. He's got fantastic channels on social media. Just type in Catholic Truth on YouTube or go to catholictruth.org. Check out his stuff. And we're actually, we're talking about some debates he had last month. And, and Brian, by the way, you are always allowed not to come on the show when you're doing stuff important as debates. So... We appreciate you taking the time to prepare. Um, yeah, so we were talking about the, the sandbag technique that he used, <laughs> and giving you 30, 30 uh, questions that you have to answer in five minutes. Uh, you were very wise not to take the, the, the bait and instead break it down on your channels. So that, that was that was genius. Yeah, I mean, you just can't. I covered some yeah. of them, you know, as much as I could, but, you know, you just can't. So I had to break them down to be intellectually honest with my listeners, with him and with anyone who's actually interested in finding the truth and not just, you know, finding some cheap tricks to win. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of, you know, at the end of the debate, you know, I was trying to tell him that. Um, you know, this, what, uh, what you teach, I made it clear, you know, cause he's saying, oh, well, Catholics believe this. And, you know, you know, the Bible teaches this. I was like, let me just make something clear to you. This is not a Catholic Protestant argument. It's not, you think it is, but it's not. Most Protestants do not believe in being saved eternally. Once saved, always saved eternal security. That's a Calvinist belief. Only Calvin believed that of the reformers. Uh, some evangelicals believe that. Some non-denominationals believe that. The majority of traditional Protestants do not believe that. And Luther, Zwingli, and others disagreed with Calvin on it. So I was like, this isn't a Catholic Protestant argument. It's a Protestant Protestant <laughs> argument. And the last time I debated this topic with somebody, I said the same thing. It's a Protestant, Protestant argument. I've listened to debates, two hour, two hour and a half debates of two Protestants on each side, pastors and theologians debating whether you can lose your salvation. I was like, when you guys get it figured out, you come back to us and we can talk about it. But, uh, but in reality, um, I said, you know, you make it seem that way, but you, he's, he doesn't claim to be a Calvinist, but I, 
definitely offended him because I kept calling him a Calvinist. He's like, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't even read the writings of John Calvin. I was like, yes, and yet you're a Calvinist because you're teaching his theology. And if you studied history more, you would know that because nobody taught what you're teaching before Calvin, first of all. And then in my last five minutes, I just went through all the early church fathers who believed in faith and works and obedience and baptism. And I showed them the unanimous, kind of a little bit of sandbagging, but um, I showed the unanimous consent of all the earliest Christians that agreed with me. And nobody believed what he's teaching until Calvin, really. And so, you know, if he had the cross-examination time, he could have maybe answered some of those, but he didn't. So, you know, I at least wanted people to know that what he's teaching is new and novel. Yeah, no, a brilliant move, uh, because it's often couched as Protestant versus Catholic when it's, you're absolutely right, it's really Protestant versus Protestant. Man, you could probably add Catholicism in there, too. Or perhaps even Protestant versus the historical Christianity. That would be a better way to put it. Yeah. Well, you know, sketching out the early church fathers in a debate format is tough because you don't want to take a lot of time, but you got to give the impression, you know, give, exactly. give them uh, give them the, uh, the bird's eye view, right, of the early church. That's not easy to do, so... Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say you're sandbagging, but <laughs> but it is a difficult thing to kind of show the trajectory throughout history. Yes, indeed, it is. And I did that in my last few debates. I tried. I always try to quote some early church fathers, but the majority of all the last three debates, I've mostly stuck with scripture. You know, and the and both of my sola scripture debates, I I showed that you know kind of took Scott Hahn's you know view. In that scripture is unbiblical, it's unworkable, and it's unhistorical. And I kind of agree with those. And so I, that's kind of how I mapped out my debate points. And, uh, and I talked so much about, you know, you say that the Bible is the final authority on all matters. We'll come back to my gender in a second. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. But uh, you say the Bible is the final authority on all matters. Well, solve the problem between Calvin and Luther then, because they were both quoting the Bible. They both disagreed fiercely with each other, and they couldn't agree based on the Bible. Now add in Zwingli, who disagreed with both of them. Now add in the Baptists and the Anabaptists, who disagreed with all of them. None of those five groups, not to mention Pentecostals, Anglicans, and the other ones down the line, you know, they all disagree with each other. So how are you going to solve the problem of that? I mean, it's really... You say you solved the problem with scripture. We have seen that that hasn't worked in 500 years. The historical, biblical model of dealing with heresy is the church. What do we see in Acts chapter 11 when the problem of circumcision comes in and the Judaizers? Do we all have them sit around and read a book on their own and get the scriptures out and start, you know, interpreting it on their own and trying to figure out whose interpretation is correct? No. They call a church council, and the authority of the apostles proclaimed what the doctrine was, that we did not need circumcision anymore and we are saved by grace alone. That proclamation was a church council. That proclamation was church authority dis definitively made. And it says uh, after that that they went out and spread the ordinances and decrees of the apostles to all the churches in the region. So this is far from Bible alone. And if you look at Christian history— I, I love to talk about history because Protestants are very uncomfortable because they don't know it. I said, you have a problem in the earliest church with Simon Magus. The apostles dealt with him with scripture. No. Then you have a problem with uh, Sibelius and then Arius and then Nestorius. You have all these people who start teaching things that aren't 
true. Arius said Christ isn't God. That's something we can agree on, Protestant and Catholic. How did they deal with Arius? Did they just have a scripture alone fight back and forth and whose scripture interpretation is right? No. They said, and even earlier than him, with people like Tertullian, Irenaeus, they said, that's what you believe. Now show us somebody else before you who also believed it. You know, they appealed to the tradition. If you can't find anyone before you who has taught this, then you have invented it. No matter what kind of interpretation of the Bible you have, no matter if you think your interpretation of the Bible is correct, it's not because no one believed this before you. It's new, it's novel, it's not Christian. Whereas Tertullian, uh, Irenaeus, Augustine, they all said, we can find our beliefs going all the way back to the earliest Christians. We can trace them in the unbroken line of bishops. We can trace them in doctrine. And they would name these people, they would name these doctrines, and they would show that not only do our our beliefs match up with the Bible, but they also match up with a history and tradition that has been handed down from the apostles. It's not new. So I said, now fast forward 13, 1400 years when the Bible alone was invented. Nobody believed it before that. So how do you solve a problem like Luther and Calvin? Or how do you solve a problem like Luther? He rejected seven New Testament books. He didn't think Jude was inspired. He didn't think Revelation or Hebrews was inspired or James. He relegated four of those books to the back of his Bible. And how do you tell Luther he's wrong based on the Bible alone? Go ahead, solve your problem based on the Bible alone. How are you going to figure out the canon? So this is kind of the direction I went with them. And they didn't really like it very much. You know, they they felt very uncomfortable. And a lot of people said they didn't seem prepared to deal with these questions. But that's the reality of Sola Scriptura. The entire history of the church absolutely used the Bible. But they never used the Bible alone, always in conjunction with the tradition and teaching and doctrine that was handed on from Jesus. Yeah, very good. Now, those other two debates, who were they against? Um, you know, nobody like big. Uh, it's really hard for the big people to put um, their money where their mouth is, to put themselves on the line, their ministry on the line, you know? Okay. But one of them was a Calvinist, a strict Calvinist, and another one was a non-denominational Bible-only Christian. He actually challenged us to the debate. Um, he asked us. And so— Wow. <laughs> which is ironic because he didn't do so well. And then people accused us of— you know, picking low fruit and, you know, putting him on the channel just to make ourselves look good and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And and they both agreed to Sol Scriptura. That's an interesting uh, point. I would imagine that would be uh, one topic that they would probably not want to debate, you know? You would think. And yeah. It was interesting because one of them agreed with me. He said, yeah, he's because I said, I was like, how can you guys promote sola scriptura you don't even know what sola scriptura is different protestants think it's different things you can't even have a working definition of what sola scriptura is many of the creeds describe it different ways modern protestantism has evolved it into if it's not in the bible then it's not true you know show me purgatory in the bible show me mary show me penance show me indulgences show me all these things if you can't it's not true that's their talking point that has become what solar scriptura is nowadays and so i just turn that around and say fine show me solar scriptura in the bible show me where everything has to be found in the bible well that doesn't have to be all in the bible you know and that sort of thing and all of a sudden they're on the defensive but you know if they have to find anything in the bible then 
you have a big you have a big problem you have, you have a big issue and they can't even agree on what that topic is and i brought that up to both of them because they both had different both debates they each had different definitions of what they thought it was so i said how are you going to work that you don't even know what it is <laughs> yeah yeah and this is uh that's something i i've noticed too and you know the high level debaters they they try to make it seem as if well, you know, this the Sola Scriptura is so well defined and, and logical and that and and you know, just forget about these aberrations they that people make up about everything has to be in the Bible. But the fact of the matter is there is no definition because there is no magisterium to define it. And if it's not in scripture, it's just a, another idea amongst many. And how are you gonna say, Oh, you know, just ignore all those aberrations? Like, well, what if those are correct? What if you're not correct? Yeah. You know, right. people say Luther wasn't correct. Yeah, he got a lot right, but there were still things he got wrong. Well, maybe and that's what they say about Calvin, too. A lot of the earliest Protestants got a lot of things right, but they were still too Catholic. So what if they still got some things wrong and we perfected it? Or, you know, like, how are you going to solve that problem based on the Bible alone? The Bible alone doesn't say, oh, here's the true definition of Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura it doesn't say that. So they are left to doing what they've done for 500 years, and that's just bicker with each other over common doctrine and theology, basic doctrine and theology. And what is their common thing that they're using? The Bible alone. So the the the, the script the argument isn't even really about the Bible alone, because all Protestants use the Bible alone, and they all disagree with each other. So how are you going to fix that problem using the Bible alone? We just go by the by biblical and historical way of using the Bible, tradition, and the authority of the church. And they didn't really know what to say to a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, you brought up my favorite subject, the canon. Maybe I'll <laughs> touch on that briefly on the next side. Uh, we're chatting with Brian Mercier of CatholicTruth.org, talking about, well, some of his recent debates. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Brian Mercier. We're talking about some debates he had last month, a debate on eternal security, two debates on Sola Scriptura. And Brian, just so I don't blow up your phone after the broadcast, you've mentioned the canon. That seems to me to be one of those silver bullets. Did they attempt to explain how they come up with the canon? Uh, let me just, right before I answer that, I'm looking at my YouTube channel right now because I just made a video called, it was totally clickbait, but it was, to, it was called the, the, the um, what is it? The topic that Protestants fear the most. And I put fear most in big red letters. And uh, just in a few days, it already has 33,000 views. Like uh -oh. my channel never usually gets that because, yeah. but I talked about the problem of the canon. I talked about the problem of Luther getting rid of books. How do you solve that as a Protestant? I asked all of them that directly. And Protestants don't want to talk about the Bible canon because they have to admit the authority of the church. Even Luther wanted to distance himself, distance himself from the canon uh, because it would admit the authority of the church. R.C. Sproul said it was a fallible collection of infallible books. If it's a fallible collection, that mean, the word fallible literally means capable of error, can be mistaken er, in error. So if we don't even know fully what's in the Bible, then people are free to include or exclude books at will. And case in point, Martin Luther, who didn't yeah. accept these books. And he even said that everyone can decide for himself what they believe in regard to the book of Revelation. What? 
Like literally, everyone can decide themselves about the Bible canon. That's ridiculous. And uh, no, they really didn't have a lot to say about the Bible canon. They don't like this topic, as I said in the video. Um, they, they, you know, they try to give all the typical Protestant talking points to get around it. Oh, well, the earliest Christians already knew what the canon was. The earliest Christians had a good idea of what it was. So it wasn't the church. I said, really? Who were these earliest Christians? What were their names? What church were they part of? You know, it's like, these are the questions that you like to talk, you know, ask people in the question and answer time. Then they get really uncomfortable, you know, because either they don't know or they do know. They'll say, oh, well, Athanasius had the first kid. And really, he was a bishop of the Catholic Church. You know, thank you for acknowledging that. You know, I'll just jump in. And um, they'll say, oh, well, Jerome, he translated. Oh, he was a Catholic as well. Yeah, you know, do you have any more? You know, so like every person they mention is a Catholic and they don't realize that or don't want to connect the dots on that. And one of my opponents just kept saying, oh, well, you know, this would probably be a good topic to talk about at another point, you know, but the reality is, you know, the Bible, I was like, oh, this has everything to do with the Bible. I was like, because if you can't figure out what should be in the Bible in the first place, if you don't even know that Jude, Philemon, or Third John are inspired scripture, then why are you using it? If you don't even know for sure, infallibly, what is scripture, then why are you using it? You're just, what you Protestants are giving me, or what Mormons give me. We know it's inspired because the Book of Mormon says so. We know it's inspired because the Bible says so. First of all, it doesn't. Second of all, you know, it's just a bad circular logic and it doesn't hold up. And no, they really didn't want to talk about the canon of scripture. Uh, one of the guys, he, honestly, two of these people, Mike Gendron, the Calvinist, and the other Calvinist guy took really variant approaches to our debates. One guy started, you know, saying he, he, he couldn't deal with it. And so he, he went off way off the mark and he started saying, well, Orthodox disagree with you. You know, you think you're right and Orthodox think they're right. Well, who's right between both of you? And he started making all of these Orthodox arguments. And I said, you're a Protestant. If you went to Orthodox, which it sounds like you might be, you would be on your way home. You'd be on a good path. You know, I'm not sure which are, I'm not sure which religion you're arguing for here because you're not defending sola scriptura very well. You're not defending the biblical canon very well. You're showing the authority of the church and that the earliest Christians, you'll say, oh, well, the earliest Christians decided. You're admitting that they decided yeah. in an extra biblical sense. They didn't <laughs> use the Bible to decide. So you're actually admitting everything the Catholic Church has taught, teaches, and proclaims. So what do you guys have to say about that? And of, I didn't really get any good answers. Uh, maybe that's why people thought they were low-hanging fruit. I don't know. But um, Mike Gendron, <laughs> well, go ahead, go if ahead. If I could just jump in really quick. You know, by them saying, well, the early Christians knew, you just won the debate because they, they're exactly. appealing to sacred tradition. I mean, <laughs> if you need say that just proves sacred tradition is necessary even to have Soskrator. It doesn't even get off the ground without sacred tradition. Exactly. Uh, okay. Sorry, I had that jump in. No, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And in fact, it reminds me of the Patrick uh, Madrid James White famous debate uh, way back when. And I brought that up in my topic, Protestants Fear the Most. I brought it up. I said James White admitted that it wasn't Sol Sola Scriptura that made the canon of Scripture. It was the church. And he said, oh, well, the church has some authority. Well, the church made the decision. And authority outside Scripture made the decision for Scripture. So what kind of authority is that? You know, who can, if, if scripture is true, then can we disagree with that authority? 
how binding is it upon us? Can we just get rid of books arbitrarily or is that authority binding? These are really big topics that they just don't want to deal with. And what's really funny is they didn't even defend Sola Scriptura well. One of the guys said, well, I don't think, because I went through every passage that Protestants used to defend Sola Scriptura, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Revelation 22, uh, the Bereans in Acts 17, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I went through all of them. And I said, here's why they don't defend Sola Scriptura at all. And in fact, they're all really bad proof texts. And here's why. And I went through all of them. And one of my opponents was like, I actually agree with you on most of that. He's like, um, actually, almost both of the Protestant ones on Sola Scriptura, they were both there were several stunned silences in the debate. Like, yeah, you know, I agree with a lot of what you said. I don't really have a problem with much of what you say. And then I'm like, then why aren't you Catholic? Why are you still Protestant? <laughs> um, but, you know, the bottom line is that they didn't defend Sola Scriptura well, and they were admitting that the verses that Protestants typically use don't really hold up. And of course they don't when you actually examine them. I said, you use the Bereans. The Bereans were Jews. Are you going by a Jewish canon or are you going by a Christian one? And Jews didn't believe in the Bible alone. So why are you using the Bereans? He's like, well, I blipped. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was fun, actually. Yeah, and that's a real important point for those listening is you need to know the verses that they're going to use and be able to address them. And once you do that, uh, that's probably why they kind of had that stunned silence, because you just kicked the legs out from underneath their position. Yeah. And one of the guys kept saying, well, you know, that would be great to talk about it another time. Maybe we can have a whole nother debate on it. Be meaning like, I don't know what to say. So let's not talk about this topic right now. Um, I was like, well, you're not talking about Sola Scriptura either. You're talking about the history of the church, councils, popes, you know, everything else except defending Sola Scriptura. And then Mike Gendron, who, you know, teaches Calvinist theology, ironically, he taught, you know, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And Calvin, 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 John Calvin actually believed that Jesus went to literal hell. He went to hell and burned for us for three days. Now, most Calvinists try to disagree, you know, dissuade themselves and distance themselves from that nowadays. But I said, how can you prove Calvin was wrong? He was using the Bible. You're using the Bible. Which Bible interpretation is correct? You know, and, you know, Mike Gendron actually started to sound Catholic. I've heard all of his debates. He said there's one and only one thing you need to do in all of his debates, he said, in all of his Protestant talks, when Protestants are the audience, he says, Acts 16, the, the man said to the jailer, what must, I, the, uh, what must I do to be saved? The jailer said to Paul. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See? Believe, not works, not the mass, not grace, not Mary, not indulgences, not other mediators, just believe. That's been his talking point for decades. He didn't come with that. Um, you know, he actually veered off of well off his script during the debate. And he was talking about, oh, well, yeah, you need obedience. Yeah, of course you have to have obedience if you believe in faith. And yes, baptism is very important. You know, we should be baptized. And he was basically giving all the Catholic talking points, and um, which was very, very interesting. He said, oh, but these things don't save us, but you do need them. I was like, why do you need them? What if you don't do them? Are you still saved? You know, how? what does need mean? You know, and so I started going through them. I was like, you're right. He said, he said that, Catholics have a false gospel. It's not just the gospel of faith and grace. They have to add all of these things to 
the gospel, to the Bible. They add indulgences. Catholics must receive indulgences, uh, he said, according to the catechism. They must do good works. They must go to mass. They must have penance. Um, they must have baptism. They add baptism to the gospel. And I said, Mike, I said, you just repeat the same talking points over and over like a typical Protestant, but you haven't actually looked at any of these verses and what they mean. Yeah, you can, you fit them all into your preconceived ideas, your Calvinist theology, but you, we didn't add baptism to anything. It was Jesus who said you must be born again through water and the spirit. If Jesus said you have to be baptized, then you have to be baptized. How is that adding to anything? I was like, if that wasn't clear enough, Mark 16, 16 says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Quote, Jesus. I said, Acts 2, 38 says that they asked Peter, New Testament, how can we be saved? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And this correlates to Acts chapter 16, where Paul uh, was with the jailer, and he came up and said, what must I do? And what did, the, what did Ananias say? He came up and said, Brother Paul, be rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Not to mention 1 Peter 3.21, which talks that baptism saves you. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, which says you have to die with Christ in order to live with him forever. How do we die with him? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, says it's through baptism. So I was like, bam, 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 hammering Mike away on all of these verses. And he is miserable. I, I feel like he was like people told me in the comments, it looked like he was researching on the Internet, like ways to like answer these verses of what I was saying, because what many people said is he just regurgitated verses. I not only gave as many or more biblical verses, but I explained them. I gave the context. I showed how they fit in the remote context of the entire New Testament. And um, and the unanimous consent of the early church. I was like, yes, faith. Yes, grace, but also we have to be baptized according to Jesus, Paul, pretty much everyone in the New Testament. We also have to live out our faith in good works and obedience to Christ. What did Jesus say in Matthew 19? You know, he, when someone said, what do I need to do to be saved? He said, follow the commandments. So you could go through all of these verses. I went through so many that we need faith, obedience, baptism, and good works. You have to live out your faith or it's not going to save you. Even James says that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, we're up to the end of the show, Brian. Just getting started. I know. <laughs> we'll have to do a part two. Uh, yes. Where can people go to get your stuff? Uh, you can check out our website, catholictruth.org. And please check out our uh, YouTube at Catholic Truth Podcast. Pretty much just hashtag Catholic Truth. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a blast. My pleasure. All right. Brian Mercier, catholictruth.org. Definitely check out his stuff. Great great material. All right. Well, hey, it's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center, turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry Jesse Show. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>